0: midtown detroit studios of wdet this is detroit today
1: michigan just ended the lame duck session last week not with a bang but with a whimper but why was it so uneventful and does the session provide insight into what we should be expecting in the new year MLive's Jordan Hermony and Michigan Public Radio Network's Rick Pluta will join us to discuss. Then, State Senator Adam Ollier stops by to discuss the resolution he sponsored to place a statue of Detroit's first black mayor, Coleman A. Young, in the U.S. Capitol. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson. There are a lot of election cycles in American politics, and that means a lot of something else lame ducks. And no, I'm not referring to a bird with a limp or even a 20 yard pass from John Kitna, oh, 20 years ago for those Detroit Lions. No. I'm talking about lame duck sessions that happen every time there's an election, but the newly elected officials haven't taken office yet. So many of the old legislators are still legislating. Well, Michigan just ended a lame duck session last week, and this one was particularly lame. But I still think it holds a lot of insight into what's going on in Lansing and what we should be expecting in the new year. To talk about what happened, why, and what the policy priorities are for Democrats in the upcoming legislative session, we have two great reporters with us. Jordan Hermony is a political reporter for MLive. Jordan, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Certainly. And with us also is Rick Pluta, senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Rick, welcome back to Detroit Today.
0: Hey there. Hi, Jordan.
1: Hey, Rick. Well, Rick, since you passed the ball off to Jordan, we will start with her in terms of my first question, which is what were the policies that the Michigan legislature tried to get through in lame duck?
2: Well, uh, tried is definitely the uh, word of emphasis here. Uh, What it came down to effectively was we uh, reporters at the Capitol were waiting for something like 16 hours the last day of session earlier this month um, for effectively a tax cut deal in exchange for a $200 million deposit into Michigan's Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve Fund. That's the fund that helps court businesses to come and put down their roots in Michigan. Um, And we were hearing that that deposit would have been potentially used to invest in a timber related industry somewhere in Delta County. Um, We don't have a a company name, but that's what the money would have been used for, uh, would have being because that never actually transpired. Sort of at the 11th hour, um, Mm -hmm. we were told that the deal fell apart, the deal overall would have been a $500 million roughly agreement um, that would have helped to supplement and backfill some of the lost revenue from a a tax cut that would have gone into effect in exchange for this deposit into the fund. Um, And effectively, when we asked why, why did this uh, not end up transpiring? There was just finger pointing Uh, Republicans in the House, uh, the higher up Republicans uh, sort of alleged that uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer backed out of the deal last moment. Ah, uh, the Whitmer administration and high-ranking Democrats, uh, as particularly in the Senate, say that that was a woeful misrepresentation of how the conversations went down, and that there was never really a a true deal that had ever been reached. So we're not honestly quite sure why or where it fell apart. But um as to what got passed, Not much. Uh, Smaller ticket items. I think one of the biggest things to come out of the lame duck session was an eight bill recycling package that had been stalled in the legislature since early 2021. But other than that, um, yeah, lawmakers walked away with not a lot to show for it. And Democrats will take control of both the House Senate and keep control of the governorship next year so there was really no firm incentive for Democrats to try and uh, play all their cards so to speak when they would get the ability to be in the driver's seat uh, leading these conversations leading these topics and negotiations come January
1: Rick why did lame duck in so early this time around
2: well, um, I, I
3: think Jordan nailed it in terms of you know, Democrats uh, taking control of the uh, Troika in terms of adopting bills and policymaking that, uh, I mean, there are some things. I mean, one that's, I, I think, particularly baffling is the earned income tax credit, which would allow low-income uh, working families to claim a bigger tax credit if they are, if they are uh, employed, and that's something that there's almost universal agreement that that ought to happen, but it's always gotten caught up in uh, other negotiations. So I, I think that sort of sets the stage for a lot of other things that did not uh, happen in lame duck. I mean, one of them is, another one was the uh, presidential primary bill which can be adopted in the next session, but without a procedural vote um, would probably not take effect before uh, the presidential primary that we would like to move closer to the front of the line. When I say we, I mean the the state of Michigan. Democrats are taking over that they think on a lot of these other policies that uh, there's still plenty of time for them to, uh, adopt them in ways that they would prefer. And, uh, you know, if not shut out Republicans, uh, they would have less influence on the final product.
1: You know, Rick, I'm glad you brought up the earned income tax credits because I think we Mm -hmm. can learn a lot uh, both about Democrats and Republicans both now and moving forward based on their strategy there. To start, uh, did Whitmer hold that for the future? Because we know that she is in support of expanded earned income tax credit.
3: Well, I mean, at this point, there's really no other option since it didn't get, uh, since it didn't get done in lame duck, but this gets to this whole complaint about Whitmer refusing to bargain allegedly. And, uh, I mean, there's just on most things, there's not a lot of incentive at this point for the governor to bargain with a majority that's been shown the door and a lot of new legislators coming in so that not only are the majorities changing, but with new people, that means new relationships. And so the governor, the Democrats, the Republicans, that they can go to these uh, new people and basically start over in terms of learning, what do you want? Especially about things that don't necessarily have such a strong um, partisan hue to them.
1: Which brings me to my next question, uh, because Republicans know that they're leaving. This is their last time in the majority. If this is something they want, this is their last opportunity to pass it with it being them as opposed to just Democrats making it happen. Yet they let that go. Does that tell us anything on how they're going to perform in the minority coming up in the next term?
3: Um, are you asking
1: me? Yes. Sorry. Oh, well, Thanks, okay. Rick.
3: Um, I mean, it it says a little bit, you know, I mean, this goes back to, you know, new relationship building. But, you know, these majorities that the Democrats have, they're slim. And everything they do to some degree or another is going to be done having in mind that um, there's at least a goal of trying to keep these majorities and maybe even build on these majorities. Going into a presidential year, while at the same time, Republicans are going to be throwing things at them to try and get Democrats to take controversial votes that might get them in trouble, especially in the more uh, in the more swing district, especially if there's no incumbent defending seat. And uh, maybe there's an opportunity for um, pickups there.
1: Jordan, turning back to you, was there anything that Republicans could have done to get these deals through? Or is this more a strategic decision of saying, hey, if we can't get what we want now, we'd rather play the opposition in the next term?
2: You know, that's honestly a great question. And I'm I'm going to come at this from the perspective of I don't think Republicans thought they would be in this situation following the midterms. And so when they were faced with this concept that they were not going to be continuing to lead these conversations, um, there was sort of a, a fission that erupted. I mean, you saw some individuals uh, say that, you know, this was the fault of leaning into uh, these sort of talking points on on transgender children in sports and and um, CRT and book banning and stuff like that. But then you saw House uh, Speaker Jason Wentworth, the outgoing House Speaker, uh, say, you know, no, this is just our fault. We ran bad campaigns. And so I think, you know, when they did end up having to come back uh, at year's end and they did have to wrap up their last couple session days, uh, it was sort of the flip of Dems in disarray. It was a a little bit of GOP in disarray. And I don't necessarily know Hmm. if there's anything that they could have done short of acquiescing to democrats and and you know center left dems the Winburn administration i don't necessarily know if there was anything they could have done to move the needle on a lot of these conversations and i think eitc was one of the unfortunate victims of this lame duck session um, because you know we had interest groups even saying that this needs to pass this year if the individuals who will benefit from an eitc boost hope to see it on their 2023 tax returns. If not, um, the wisdom right now is that they're going to have to wait quite a while for this money to return to them.
1: That's a great point. I mean, these decisions have impact on Michiganders now. Holding it off for a year means holding off on that savings for Uh, voters and citizens pocketbooks as we're talking again with Jordan Hermony, political reporter with MLive, as well as Rick Pluta, senior state capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network here on Detroit Today. And we want to look at the historical context of this lame duck session. As we did mention, it ended a little early and it also ended with a bit of a whimper. But I ask you, Rick, for historical context, how does this lame duck session compare to lame duck sessions we've had in Michigan in the past?
3: Oh, my goodness. I mean, some of them have, I I mean, you know, have have just been explosive um, with, you know, big policy, um, you know, with big policies uh, uh, being made. And this one, I mean, Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we had just a little over 50 bills passed and almost, you know, all of them were of, uh, you know, of little consequence and bigger deals. uh, I'm sorry? Did I
2: get that right? No, I was agreeing. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on the money with that.
3: Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, there might be some vetoes with no chance for the uh, exiting lawmakers, at least, to go back and revisiting, you know, some policy priorities that maybe were quite important to them when they they took office. But, you know... um, like I said, there just wasn't a big incentive for Democrats to bargain on, you know, even the least controversial stuff um, and, you know, maybe throw some bones to the exiting uh, Republican majority and any complaints that Republicans had, including, you know, Speaker Jason Wentworth, who said that, you know, the governor just isn't bargaining on things. and And I mean, there might be Um, um, legit disagreements about the parameters of that complaint. But why would Democrats and why would the governor engage in any intensive bargaining when they're in the catbird seat in the new session?
1: One of the things, speaking of of this transition that did occur... Uh, during that closing session that has a lot of people talking is Mike Shirky's farewell speech. Uh, uh, Jordan, before uh, I toss it to Rick, Jordan, can you explain to us, uh, listeners who might not have seen it, exactly what uh, Mark Shirky did with his time during his farewell speech and the things that he brought up?
2: I'm going to be honest, even having listened to it, I don't know if I can (laughs) fully explain it. Uh, That's fair. Yeah, no there was um for at risk of not further perpetuating conspiracy theories um mike Shirky did sort of ping pong back and forth between uh interesting anecdotes surrounding the capitol including one uh where he believed the toilet water was heated in a senate office building and may or may not have stuck his hand in the bowl to test that. Um, I don't have any sources sort of confirming or denying that. So moving past that, though, he did use some of his time, however, to uh, encourage bipartisanship, uh, which many lawmakers did uh, in their exiting speech, but then also sort of struck a rather bizarre note. And I was told, though I was in the House, we had a reporter in the Senate that the air was incredibly tense when he shifted to sort of speaking about Um, this shadowy global elite that hopes to unite our country under one, or our world, I'm sorry, under one currency and religion. And it was just very, very bizarre. Not at all what a typical outgoing speech is, because for those listening at home, they're very typically, you know, almost like Oscar speeches. They're yeah. like, I want to thank my mom. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my husband for being there for me this whole time. Um, you know, yeah. very excited of the things we got done. Glad to work with you all. So this was a very odd note for one of the Senate's top Republicans to go out on.
1: That's right. And again, we're talking well, the about Senate's very,
3: right. I mean, the, the Senate's very top Republican. I, I I did watch it. And yeah, it was, I mean, it went on for a while. But, but I mean, he is the Senate majority leader or he was. And it was kind of standard fare of thanking his family and his staff and talking about some things that he was proud to have accomplished. And then it suddenly veers into calling COVID-19 a surprise foreign attack that was, um, you know, that, that was actually planned that Scientists, the governor knew about COVID nineteen and didn't do what was necessary because they had different plans. It, it's hard to follow because it was so disjointed. And you know, he talked about uh, um, natural immunity, which he was really pushing a lot. You know, throughout the um, the 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 Senate session, COVID nineteen vaccines weren't uh, effective um and then you know i mean the ones that everyone sort of keyed in on because of the bizarre nature of it was you know claiming that he saw that the water was boiling in the toilets in the capitol he put his hand in the water to you know prove to himself that it was true and asking himself why there's boiling water in the toilet seats in the capitol and which raised all kinds of questions, you know, one of them being, why did you put your hand
1: in the, uh, in the,
3: in the toilet? And, and he predicted, I mean, more or less that we're in the end times.
1: Yeah. Well, that prediction has been happening for a while, there, Rick. But I'll tell you, when we're talking about a state state Senate Majority Leader, Republican Mike Shirky, uh outgoing Speaker, uh, not so sure that we'll we've had a speech like that before. I don't know if that portends having speeches like that in the future. I will tell you, Mike, if you want to prove water's boiling, you don't put your hand in there. That'll be scalding. You know, you're gonna need to go see a nurse. Get a thermometer, my friend. There are ways. <laughs> Well, I've been this. covering the
3: Capitol for 30 years, and at least in my time there, I have never witnessed a <laughs> uh, departing speech like that. And and some of them have been weird.
1: Yeah. Well, Rick, before we get out of here, I know that you have to leave, and I want to let I'll let you go. But uh, any final thoughts on the lame duck session and what's ahead for uh, Mich- uh Lansing uh, in the next term?
3: Well, I mean the lame. I mean to to use the. Um, you know, the the phrase that everyone has, which is the lame duck session was by and large lame. In terms of time spent, it was a lot more on um, farewell speeches, um, which before term limits didn't take a whole lot of time because it was sort of a trickle of, of, of people leaving that now have become, it's probably time to retire this tradition because we're talking about people who have served Six years or eight years, maybe, you know, and some who've served a lot longer just because they've been in the House and the Senate. And it takes days and a ton of scheduling and prolongs the uh, end of the year session without taking into account the actual policy initiatives that need to be taken care of by maybe even a couple of weeks.
1: Rick Pluta, Senior State capital Correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network and sometimes plumber extraordinaire, thank you for your expertise today on Detroit Today. I appreciate the time. When we return here on Detroit Today, we're going to continue our conversation with Jordan Hermony and discuss with you questions the next legislative session, including what do you want to see the state pick up? What are your biggest concerns uh, for the upcoming session? And what do you think Democrats should give priority to? Give us a call, 313 577 1019. And when we return, we'll get to your calls and continue with Jordan. <laughs> Today. 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, joined by Jordan Hermony, a political reporter for M Live, discussing not only the lame duck session that just occurred in the Michigan State Legislature, but what we can expect moving forward. And we want to include you in this portion of the conversation as you can give us a call 313-577-1019 to let us know uh, what you're thinking about moving forward. What kind of policies do you want this? state legislature to pass in the upcoming session what are your biggest concerns what kind of things do you think democrats should give priority to give us a call again that number 313-577-1019 or you can even get in touch with us on twitter using the hashtag detroit today back in my day we called it a pound sign But Jordan, I want to bring that to you right now, because that is the question on everyone's mind. We want to give you an opportunity to let us know what policies the Michigan or what policies Democrats are gearing up to pass in this upcoming session.
2: So whether they are ready to or not, uh, the fight over raising the state's minimum wage is more than likely going to be top of mind for the legislature. So. Backing up a little bit in explanation of this, Uh, in 2018, there were two petition initiatives that went around the state. One was to raise the minimum wage. Another was to expand sick leave for workers. And those were signed. And the legislature at the time uh, decided to adopt those petitions rather to then let them go to the ballot. Um, It's one of two things that can occur with these kinds of petition initiatives. So they adopted the petition into law. And then later that same session, they changed it and scaled back the minimum wage portion specifically so that um, the initial petition called for increasing the minimum wage to $12 an hour. Um, They made that. So yes, it would increase to $12. But by 2030, and only if employment remained low, um, advocates of the initial petition immediately cried foul. They were just upset and believed that this was an abuse of power by the legislature. Um, But at the time, the Attorney General Bill Schutte argued that the legislature could do this, which led to the term adopt an amend, um, which was, you know, uh, a commonplace between 2018 and now. However, earlier this summer, uh, the courts ruled that the move that the legislature did do in 2018 was in fact uh, not valid. They could not do that. They could not adopt a law and amend it in the same session. Um, So what we're looking at currently, minimum wage in Michigan is about 987, I wanna say. Uh, The measure would still boost it to $12 an hour, but where the uh, interest is is for tipped workers. So tipped workers right now make just underneath $4 an hour, not counting their tips. Um, They would see a 200 something percent jump in their uh, pay to just under $10 an hour. Um, And, you know, the there's a court of appeals hearing going on today, actually, uh, to try and figure out whether or not this is going to be implemented, because we're looking at a potential February 20th, 2023 implementation date for this uh, 2018 ballot initiative, which especially in the, the restaurant industry, other tipped industries, they're arguing they will not be able to handle an overnight sort of just jump from you know, just under $4 to, you know, just under $12, that that's going to cause them to lay off staff, that that's going to cause them to scale back workers. And so the legislature is going to need to step in, uh, it's believed, in order to figure out whether this is going to be a slow scale into this $12 an hour minimum wage, how it's going to be implemented. And all of these conversations that should have been going on ahead of this simply haven't. Um, And so, or at least they haven't been in the public sphere. So what is going to happen remains to be seen, but the legislature is definitely going to have to weigh in on something prior to february or else michigan could be in a very very interesting predicament
1: yeah a short time window to make something happen that could have a tremendous impact on a lot of workers and uh, a very important industry here hospitality restaurants uh tipped staff but right now we're gonna get to the phone lines as we have ray in pontiac uh ray uh go wait a second we got ray on pontiac uh ray go ahead you're on detroit today You're good. Thank you. Can you you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, uh, I'm a senior, and the former governor, Rick Snyder, uh, put that egregious pension tax on us pensioners uh, during his administration, and Governor Whitmer ran her first term uh, saying that she was going to rescind that pension tax she didn't get it done in her first term now that she has the backing of congress i would be interested to know what rick and your other guests believe she would do this term with that backing would she relieve us of that egregious Pension tech.
1: Right, right, That great question, Ray. I, I can't call Rick back, but Jordan, I would present the question to you. Uh pension tech is on that on the table, repealing that.
2: It is. It is. Uh the Whitmer administration, when we've been talking about tax cuts throughout the better part of the last two years or so, um, raising the EITC. Repealing pension tax for seniors and providing rebates for electric vehicle use are some of the ways that the Whitmer administration has offered, uh, giving you know financial relief to residents. Uh, Republicans, at the same vein, uh, during that time when they held control of the legislature, instead wanted to go about it from cutting an income tax rate and establishing a child tax credit, broadening exemption on retirement incomes. So I would be surprised, considering as Ray did correctly point out, uh, Governor Whitmer did run on repealing that tax. Um, and now that she has her party in control of both chambers, I do think that that is something that is, you know, very feasibly on the table.
1: That would seem like a lighter lift, too. I mean, do we have any idea of what the Ho- Michigan Dems in the House and Senate would feel about that? Or do we still need more time to uh, collect that information?
2: I mean, I I don't see why they wouldn't right. support that. It's it's one of the more um, I guess, across the table issues that Dems have have been in favor of doing. Uh, So, like I said, I would honestly be more surprised if over the next two years we don't see any movement on that.
1: Ray and Pontiac, thank you again for the call. As uh, that was an excellent question and gives us an opportunity to move to Neil in Sterling Heights. Neil, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. All right. Good morning. Um, I'd like to see the
4: uh, legislature do something about the, uh, the way the gas tax is set up in the state. Because currently uh, wholesale sales of gas tax, they don't pay the uh,
1: wholesale sales of fuel, excuse me, gas. They don't pay the gas tax, only the retail sales. So like companies like UPS and FedEx and Amazon who buy their fuel wholesale, they don't pay the gas tax, but they're using the roads just like
4: everyone else is and, and causing more damage. Uh, additionally, i like to see also the legislature try to do something to have safer streets throughout the whole, uh, the whole state with uh, better trained police and also uh, better paid and, uh, 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 police officers and better paid uh, school teachers as well. That's my, uh, what I'd like to see the legislature take
3: care of.
1: Appreciate your points there, Neil. Jordan, have any of those items been uh, something that uh, Michigan Dems have talked about doing in the upcoming session?
2: So good news for Neil with regard to uh, increased funding for police officers. There's actually been movement on, on supplementals uh, that have gone through the legislature that do give or, or bills as well that give, you know, further funding to secondary road patrol. Uh, they hope to bolster uh, recruitment and retention uh, of police officers throughout Michigan, if I remember correctly, as as this appropriation specifically did move through the legislature a little while ago, um, there was this sort of uh, in, incentive to get uh, police officers from other states to move to Michigan, um, and sort of a a host of things that would go along with that to make sure that they would stay in Michigan. Um, as for safer streets, I know that the Whitmer administration has been uh, attempting to make some moves there, but I will admit that that is not something I am as knowledgeable on. If I do remember correctly, uh, though there have been several instances where Governor Whitmer has touted uh, getting more firearms off the streets. Um, and and uh, that sort of couples in with the increased funding for police and road patrol. Um, as for the gas tax, Michigan's gas tax is going to go up uh, another cent, cent and a half starting January 1 because of an automatic adjustment written into state law. Um, so that will bring us to, I believe, 28, just underneath 29 cents per gallon, according to the Treasury Department. Um, so, you know, like I feel like I've been saying this a lot with everything uh, post-lame Dr. I guess. Everything's on the table, but it, with regard to some of these points that uh, he he just brought up, Uh, Some movement has already been made and is continuing to be made on certain uh, those certain topics.
1: Thank you so much, Neil, for the call and uh, your questions as uh, we have open lines for you now. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Give us a call. Tell us what you would like to see Democrats do in the legislature. Any bills that you think should be proposed for this upcoming term. Also, as we discussed uh, the potential rate hike, the potential, I should say, wage hike, I like for tipped employees. Maybe you're a restaurant worker, a tipped employee, or maybe you're someone who runs a restaurant. You can give us some insight into the concerns that you have about that uh, shift that happens in February if uh, the uh, legislature doesn't attack the problem and maybe perhaps put in some smoothing. As uh, we also have a comment from Ed Van S. on Twitter saying, wave bye-bye to Right to Work as soon as possible. Jordan, I present that to you, Right to Work. I know you've Said everything's on the table. Has there been any uh, clamoring or statements from people saying that uh, right to work could be something that uh, Democrats are uh, looking to attack the coming term?
2: So actually, the day that the House Democrats elected their new um, floor leadership, so you know house uh majority i'm sorry <laughs> house speaker uh floor leader etc cetera, etc cetera, uh who they elected as i believe the uh the floor leader ayash uh, immediately told reporters that right to work was on the table um you know michigan's one of 20 something states i think it's 23 or 24 with this law that was enacted under the Snyder administration implemented in 2013 which prohibits employers from requiring union membership um, and uh, along with uh, several other things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Democrats have not only put this on the table, I feel like it's effectively been slammed on the table and uh, very, very likely that we will see some kind of traction on this, uh, considering it was quite literally one of the first things that came out of lawmakers' mouth when we scrummed uh, with them following the election of their new members to their new leadership positions.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I you hear about this all the time, but I've also heard people say, Talk is cheap. Uh, show me with your actions. And that's why I'm really intrigued about legislation, again, with the understanding that uh, th- they have not taken the majority yet. But certainly there's been legislation that was passed around uh, while they had the minority to put pressure on Republicans in the state house and state Senate that they looked at. Are there any bills that were put forth that had uh, vast support from Dems that we know could be lighter lifts again for them just to present? Uh, in the next term and actually move those forward. Any tangible things that we know they could act on in the upcoming term?
2: Well, I mean, I know we mentioned the big ones, the uh, raising the earned income tax credit. I mean, that had bipartisan support and was just an unfortunate casualty of the lame duck session. Um, I mean, the bill out of the Senate was even sponsored by a Republican and you had Republican, uh, former Republican lawmakers that, that are currently in interest group positions, uh, Just saying that, you know, if you don't pass this now, it's a very selfish move. But speaking to lighter topics, I mean, you one that I can think about the top of my head that I know I had a Republican come mention to me uh, on his way out the door that he was mad that did not get passed was uh, Michigan currently has nothing on the books regarding fertility fraud. I recognize that that's sort of an abrupt change of conversation, Um, but
1: didn't even know that was a thing.
2: Yeah, fertility fraud, it was uh, did receive bipartisan support and again was another very unfortunate casualty of lame duck. It, the bill basically, or rather there is no law in the books in Michigan regarding a doctor who uh, uses a non-approved sample in no. uh, artificial insemination for women looking to get pregnant. I will let readers sort of fill in the blanks there, but instead of using the approved uh, genetic material, uh, he uses his own, and that is very gross, not yep. to sound childish, but uh, that's just a placeholder for other words I imagine many other people would like to use. Again, something that had bipartisan support fell apart at the last minute because of backroom negotiations and bills that just otherwise did not moved to the front. Uh, as Rick mentioned earlier, moving the presidential primary, again, something that had bipartisan support, uh, again, was introduced actually by the same Senator, if I remember correctly, Republican Senator who introduced the earned income tax credit cut, Wayne Schmidt, there's there's several items that I would not be surprised if we had the ground running on. Those are those are among them.
1: All right. Speaking of Republicans, by the way, we touched on it a little bit in the first segment. But uh, do we have any idea of what the Republican strategy will be in the minority now and whether they plan on running different candidates uh, two years from now? I know that's a little early to get into that. Uh, but uh, if they're If we have any idea on whether they want to tack more to the moderates to try to get back uh, power or are they going to look to run more extreme candidates and try to rally the base with their legislative proposals and candidates?
2: I'm going to be frank. I don't even think they're fully aware of their own game plan currently. And that's not to sound disparaging. It's just I mean, you look to the state party right now and the fight that's going on over the Michigan Republican Party chair forward slash co-chair position. Uh, Current chair Ron Weiser is not going to be seeking the position again. Current co-chair Michonne Maddock, who is the wife of current state representative Matt Maddock. um, She, to my knowledge, at least publicly, has not really weighed in on whether or not she plans to run again. Uh, So she is an unknown. But I mean, the Wiser Maddock dichotomy sort of represents where we're at currently. Where Wiser was a bit more of the quote unquote old guard Republican, Michon Maddock came up through the grassroots and really seized power and helped um, grassroots styled Republicans and grassroots efforts come up through the Republican Party. However, we did see that get just. Monu- oh, I shouldn't say monumentally, but we did see that get by and large smacked down uh, at the state level. Uh, Republicans lost the House; they lost the Senate for the first time in decades. Uh, a little fun fact I always like giving is the last time that Dems had the Senate, Mash was still airing. Ah, yes. Uh, just to put put it in perspective. Um, but so I mean, you you wouldn't maybe know that though if you listen to House now incoming House Minority Leader Matt Hall. Um, he when he was. Uh, sort of disparaging the fact that the governor did not, uh, from his perspective, come to the table and reach an agreement with Republicans uh, over this tax cut for an economic incentive deal. Um, He sort of panned it as being, you know, the House is entering in a 56-54 majority for the Democrats, which is very, very close. And I think the exact Uh, The exact phrase he used was bipartisan deal making is going to be at a premium. So, you know, if you if you look at it from Hall's perspective, he seems to be giving the uh, this idea that there is going to be need to be a lot of meeting in the middle. There is going to need to be a lot of this bipartisan camaraderie. And obviously, this was this was our first uh, House and Senate election underneath newly redistricted maps, which by and away did largely bring things to be more competitive and make Michigan far more purple so is he right sort of remains to be seen it's obviously very easy to pontificate in you know 2022 end of December uh when you know come January this could be something completely different but uh it sounds from what the house is saying that bipartisanship and coming more towards the middle is going to need to be priority for Republicans now whether that is, uh, center right or center left remains to be seen but with Democrats in control it it wouldn't shock me if Republicans do need to play uh, no pun intended a bit more conservative with their conservative politics in the sense of not maybe trying to hit all of their wish list items and instead be more open and willing to, meet and come to an agreement yeah. on, you know, something that they may not fully be backing.
1: Right, right. Well, Jordan, we're going to have to end it there. I'm sure Adam Alda is excited to hear that what Michigan's going through, bringing up MASH again, as uh, we will close out this segment with you. Jordan Hermony, political reporter with M Live. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: When we continue on Detroit Today, very interesting conversation as we're going to have a chance to stay in the state legislature, but turn to a resolution aimed at putting a statue of former Detroit Mayor Coleman Young in the U.S. Capitol with State Senator Adam Ollier. Keep it locked right here as Detroit Today continues. Detroit Today, 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson and statutes. They're often made for people and of people we honor and cherish. That might be why they're often carved in stone. Well, a new statue from Michigan will potentially be heading to the U.S. Capitol. Last week, the Michigan House passed a resolution to replace the Michigan statue of former governor and slave owner Lewis Cass with Coleman Young, Detroit's first black mayor. To tell us about why he led the resolution to swap Cass statute with Young's, here with us is Michigan State Senator Adam Ollier. Adam, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. How long have you been trying to replace the statue of Lewis Cass with Coleman Young?
4: Well, I've been actively you know, swapping with uh, former Mayor Young for about the last two years, but for years have been involved in the discussion about who we should be elevating, who we should be recognizing. And I think that's the broader discussion over the past two years, particularly with uh, the Charlottesville uh, murder and protests and the renaming of military installations. We're starting to see the common discourse recognize the need for change across the country. And so I'm really excited about it.
1: Why do you think the statue of Coleman Young should sit in the U.S. Capitol? And specifically, you already mentioned to us, of course, uh, having the conversations of uh, who we should be elevating and who not. I want to, really want to get into what about his legacy you think that people should know sets him apart uh, for being in the U.S. Capitol.
4: Well, first, let me explain why we have, well, where it's going. So National Statuary Hall is a part of the Capitol that has two statues from every state. And so those states are saying, hey, this is the best of our state. This tells the story of our state. And this is who we want to project to the country and the world what they should know about our state. And so when you think about Michigan, you think about Detroit, you think about the auto industry, you think about the Tuskegee Airmen, you think about domestic manufacturing, you think about all these things, and you think about organized labor. And Coleman Young had a unique leadership role in every single facet, of those spaces and particularly over the last century, right? So Coleman Young was a Tuskegee Airman, which is something a lot of people don't know. He was fighting for civil rights and integrating, uh, the officers club as a young second lieutenant. And so as a captain in the army, I can relate and appreciate that the benefits that I have are because of people like him, you know? And then you start to say, well, okay, that, that's great. What about next? Uh, The thing that we think back on as one of the biggest stains on our country politically is the McCarthy time as we were going, as people were going back and calling people communists and doing this very crazy witch hunt in these spaces. And Coleman Young, when it was not popular, when presidents, senators, when people at every level were acceding and saying, oh, it's okay, you know, and just letting McCarthy do the terrible things that he was doing, Coleman Young didn't. He stood up, he went, he testified, and he pushed back in a way that no one else was willing to do. And so here's another moment in history and time where it shows that Michiganders have always been leaders in taking care of people and pushing back against governments, you know, when they're not doing the right thing. And that was Coleman Young. He was only the second black man to serve in the Michigan Senate where I serve today. He was the first black mayor and one of just a handful of black mayors of his time. He was pushing for police reform against uh, violence against black folks, you know, with the big five. As we think about how our country is still dealing with those issues, there's a reason that Detroit did not have the same kind of challenges as a result of uh, police violence that some of the other cities have. And I like to believe that a lot of that is because of the work that Coleman Young did uh, as mayor, you know, and he was a real advocate, was working on police reform was the last person to build a brand-new auto factory in the city of Detroit when he built the GM Poletown plant. And that's the site of Factory Zero. So as we think about where the country's going with electric vehicles, all that starts with a factory that he built by sheer force of will. You can't go downtown or be a part of this state without seeing the legacy of his space because most people's experience with the city is coming to our beautiful sports venues or going downtown. Coleman Young made all of those things happen, building the Renaissance Center. Uh, honestly, he made, he made Joe Louis Arena happen just by going out and digging. He was like, all right, just start digging a hole downtown until they agreed to build Joe Louis. Think about what Detroit would look like if not for Joe Louis, if the Red Wings hadn't stayed in downtown and the Tigers and now the Lions back and you know the Pistons back it would be a fundamentally different community, and I think that would have real implications about where our state would have been able to go as we talk about the businesses that have been able to locate in the the state's largest city.
1: I think you do a great job of uh, encapsulating a lot of the things in the legacy that make Coleman Young so endeared to people in Detroit. But you also know that he was a controversial figure to those, especially in the suburbs, and many who viewed him negatively. Uh, As someone who works uh, in a bipartisan manner with people in the suburbs, uh, what do you think that people out there get wrong about the legacy of Coleman Young?
4: I think they just were hearing the story from Brooks Patterson, right? And you talk about how two people's legacies could not have diverged more clearly, right? As Coleman Young's legacy has uh, aged, people are like, oh, wow, he was a really fiscally conservative mayor. The way that he managed the books. I mean, when Detroit's bankruptcy happened, the news and the free press both wrote big articles talking about that. You compare that to his foil, which was Brooks Brooks Patterson, who – to the end of his career, we're still saying very racist and poignant things about the city of Detroit, who became famous for fighting busing. Show me who didn't like you, and I'll show you who you are. And I think that was a really clear indicator. And as people start to look at who Coleman Young is today, they just look differently. And that was a conversation I had with a lot of Republican members. They had these ideas about who Coleman Young was. But when they, you know, Googled them, they were like, oh. He did that. He built the Renaissance Center. You you know, we would have when people complain about how we don't have regional transit. Coleman Young had a deal for regional transit. It was done. It was funded under the Carter administration. Brooks Patterson blocked it. Wayne, Oakland, Macomb County would have regional transit with had a light rail. The extension of the people mover that covered all three counties if Brooks Patterson hadn't blocked it.
1: Yeah. We're speaking again with Adam Ollier here on 101.9 WDET talking about his proposed legislation or his legislation that's passed the House that would uh, would replace the statute of Lewis Cass uh, at the U.S. Capitol with one of Coleman A. Young. Adam, can you tell us where we're at in that process? What's it's going to take to complete the transition?
4: Yeah. So Governor Whitmer will send a letter to the Capitol architect saying that we have passed a joint resolution through the House and the Senate. Uh, To replace the statue of Louis Cass, she will tell them where they want or where she wants to put the statue of Louis Cass. A five-member commission will be appointed, and then we're going to raise the money. So the state of Florida spent about $500,000 in the construction of the most recent statue, which is of Mayor McLeod, which is the first black person to be sent to national statue. Coleman Young would be the second and the first black man. And so the goal is to raise about $2 million. The Coleman A. Young Scholarship Foundation will be the fiduciary. And every dime, nickel, or penny we raise more than is necessary to uh, construct the statue Uh, will go to the scholarship fund. You know, that was Mayor Young's enduring legacy was educating children and doing this. And a lot of people say, well, why is this statue so important? The statue is there to tell the story and to make people remember the work that was done and to elevate that work which is why it's so important for us to be able to raise the money to let the statue move across the state, to do the kind of educational programming to talk about his legacy. And the reason we talk about his legacy is because that's the legacy of Michigan as a leader. Michigan has always been a state that sends folks to go out and fight and defend our freedoms. And in being able to talk about the Tuskegee Airmen, which Michigan has the uh, National Tuskegee Airmen's uh, Museum, being able to talk about the labor movement, being able to talk about domestic manufacturing and the the importance of keeping those things. We'll be able to tell not only Mayor Young's story, but the story of Michigan and how it's important for us to build on those legacies.
1: I know you, in in trying to drum up bipartisan support, which you were able to do for this bill, you certainly had to also get pushback from people saying, oh, we can't forget the legacy or we can't just keep rechanging our history by uh, taking out statues of people that we had in the past. And in this case, in order to get Coleman A. Young in the U.S. Capitol, we'd have to take out Louis Cass, who has a bit of a... uh, 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 a tangled history, if you will, as we look at it through a modern lens as to an earlier one. But what did you tell people who had concern about losing the legacy of Michigan, a guy like Louis Cass, who certainly had an impact on national politics, not just here in Michigan?
4: This isn't about losing a legacy. It's about who do we recognize and who do we want people to say is being sent by our state. And so Mm -hmm. I think in many ways, I'm the perfect uh, bearer for this. I'm a black man and a Native American man. My grandmother's grandmother walked from Georgia to Oklahoma in the Trail of Tears, something that was promulgated by Secretary Cass when he was the Secretary of War. He was a man who believed in popular sovereignty, which sounds like a great idea, right? Like, oh, we want people to have sovereignty. No, that really meant that in the expansion of slavery, Mayor Lewis Cass does not have a bunch of defenders out saying, oh, well, he's this great. No. And there is no requirement or guarantee that anyone gets to stay In this honor forever. That's not what it was designed to do. Lots of states are swapping in and doing those things as they tell the story of where the state has gone and become, right? So Mayor Young tells the story of the last century. Republicans replaced Zachariah Chandler, who was also a former mayor of the city of Detroit, an abolitionist, a Republican, a U.S. Senator, and his statue sits in front of um, the Supreme Court building today. It's just time to recognize a different person.
1: Right. And Adam, I got about 30 seconds left, but I have to ask, you served with honor in the State Senate. Your term ends in January. What's next for you, Mr. Ollier?
4: Yeah, so I'm going to be the director of the Veterans Affairs Agency. Really excited about that. Would love to come back and talk to you about all the great work we're going to do there. And I'm also going to teach two classes at Wayne State uh, in the planning department, one around community economic development, and the other about planning, power, and politics.
1: Adam, I'll definitely take you up on that offer. And thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Have a good one. That's going to do it for us here on Detroit Today. The show is produced by Sam Corey and myself. Technical director is Matthew Trevethan, And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Tune in tomorrow when we'll be back with another fantastic conversation looping you in as you are listening to 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.